We actually this morning will be continuing our studies in, in Paul's first letter to Timothy in a series entitled Be Strong in Grace and this is part 31 and entitled The Young and the Old and we'll be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Um, we, uh, we've started this tradition and so let's go ahead and, and go ahead with it. Uh, there's bound to be somebody around you that you haven't greeted yet because you came in here singing and, and uh, if you would just take a minute, stand up, greet somebody that's nearby, give somebody a hug or I don't know, a holy kiss. I don't know how you manage this. All right, those of you who can remember where you were sitting, those of you who can remember where you were sitting, please return there. If you can't remember where you were sitting, ask the person you're talking to where you came from, and they can point you back in the right direction. I'm so glad to watch you do that, and, and uh, one of the things that I love about the Potter's House is the way that we take time uh, at the end of the service, so many people just stand around and talk and fellowship and and I, I think, you know, there are things that happen during that stretch of time that really can't happen from this stretch of time, this time uh, when I'm in the pulpit. But uh, last week, uh, well, I was here uh, uh, last week as well, and last week we unpacked verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, where Paul told us to be diligent in these matters and to give ourselves wholly to them. And last week, as we talked about these matters, we again emphasized the need that we all have to make a plan, put that plan into practice, and stick to that plan. And the plan that we're talking about, these things, is the plan that you personally make to be more involved with God's word regularly on a daily basis. As you spend time in the quiet of your own heart, the quiet of your room, studying God's word on your own, and sharing what you learn then with, from God's word with others. Now, we've been talking about this make a plan thing for weeks, and uh, so I suspect uh, that there are, there are two kinds of people here this morning. I'm just going to say that. There are those who have, uh, who have made a plan or are making a plan and attempting to stick to it, and, and there are those who just don't want to make a plan. Some of you may be saying, I, I didn't come here to make a plan. I come here on Sundays to sit and listen, and that's enough for me. And then you might add, and, you know, if they try to force me to make a plan, I'm out of here. Well, uh, we, we love having you here. And since we love having you here, we're not going to force you to make a plan. I don't even know how I would do that. We won't even try to force you to make a plan to study God's word and on your own and share it with other people. I, I won't try to force you, but I will say that if you're not studying God's word on your own and sharing what you've learned with other people, you're missing out on one of the great joys of life. And you're missing out on key opportunities to grow. I say that because as we study, God's word is planted in our hearts. And once God's word is planted in our hearts, it has the opportunity to bear fruit in our lives. That's how it works. This is a no-brainer, but dry ground does not bear fruit. Dry ground is barren until you cultivate the soil, plant a seed, water that seed, and then tend the budding plant. In the same way, God's word cannot bear fruit in our lives unless and until we plant the, the, the 
cultivate the soil in our hearts, plant the seed of God's word there in our thinking, and then water and care for God's word as it grows in our thinking and finds its way into our lives. Because growth in our lives in Christ only happens when we allow God's word to change the way we think and the way we look at the world. But once again, you already know that plants only bear fruit when they're cultivated. And, and when we cultivate a plant, for example, you loosen up the soil around the plant to give it the chance to thrive, to grow, and to bear fruit. And, and cultivating a plant simply means fostering the growth of the plant. You want the plant to grow. And this is something on the plantation over there in the Philippines that we do on a very regular basis as we maintain the relationship that we have with the 40,000 coffee trees that are bearing fruit over there now. Uh, it, it is a relationship. It truly is a relationship. We've got a guy that, that uh, works for us as a consultant. He's there every other month or so. His name is Mario, and I've never met anybody like him. He talks to coffee trees. You wander the plantation with him, and he'll stop and have a little conversation with this one that really seems to be struggling right now to grow and bear fruit. He actually talks to them, and, and it's just great being with him because he knows everything about a coffee tree and how to get it to thrive. The same thing is true of our relationship with God's Word. We read it. We meditate on it. We memorize it. We, we pray through it, and we study God's Word. That's kind of the summary uh, statement that we've been making about God. And as we do those things, God's word is planted as a seed in our hearts. God's word is hidden in the soil of our hearts. That's what planting is. King David described that process like this in Psalm 119. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So the seed of God's word is in our hearts, but how do we cultivate that seed? How do we break up the soil around it? How do we foster the growth of the plant that has been planted there, that seed that's been planted there? Well, the answer to those questions comes from something that we've also been saying over these last few weeks as we've been looking particularly at chapter 4. That's simply this. Once God's word bears fruit in our hearts, we need to share it with others so that the seed of God's word that has grown in our hearts can grow in their hearts as well. What's growing in my heart can grow in your heart. What's growing in your heart can grow in my heart, but only, only if you share it with me. Only if you, you help me to appreciate what you've learned. So we we plant the seed of God's word in our hearts when we study. And we cultivate the seed of God's word in our hearts when we share it with others. In other words, as we've studied chapter 4 together, Paul has provided us with a wonderful way to grow spiritually by nourishing ourselves. I, I think, I'm sure you picked up on that. We nourish ourselves spiritually with God's word. So that means that for four weeks at least now, you've had all the information that you need to help you put things in place that will help you to thrive and grow spiritually to the point of true maturity. Now, you can't grow to spiritual maturity in four weeks. Don't, don't threaten yourself with that at all. Don't, don't hesitate to understand that. You can't grow to spiritual maturity in four weeks, but over the course of four weeks, you can put a plan in place that will allow you to grow, that will prompt you to grow to maturity spiritually, and that means that if you and I don't get actively involved in the process of studying God's word on our own and sharing it with other people, we really have no solid hope 
of growing and bearing fruit. We become people, when that happens, we become people who, after 20 years at church, we don't have 20 years of experience in God's Word. We have one year experience 20 times over because we've just sat and listened and we've done nothing with the truth that came our way. We haven't planted it in our hearts and asked other people to cultivate it by way of discipleship. And, and that's an unfortunate thing. And I don't mean that as a, a threat when I say that, but I, I really have nothing to threaten you with. I, I keep thinking that. But if you don't mind hearing an old man beg, there's something that I'd like to share with you. Over the years, I've spent thousands of hours studying God's Word. And, and I don't mean that as a boast, uh, but as something that's just been a simple fact of life for me. Those hours are hours that I've spent alone, just God and me, finding the seeds of truth there in His Word that I can hide in my heart. But, and I say this cautiously, in the spirit of knowing that a seed will not thrive, grow, or bloom unless it's cultivated, I can honestly say that for me, it is not enough for me to cloister myself away and study God's Word. I must take the time to share God's Word with others if I have any hope of God's Word doing the thing in my life that God intends His Word to do. That's because, as we've been saying, studying God's Word plants the seeds and sharing God's Word cultivates the seeds. What that comes down to is I plant those seeds in my own heart as I study God's word, as God reveals his word to me when I study. But you, you are the ones who cultivate those seeds so that they can grow and bear fruit. And I, uh, I want to try to illustrate that for you. By now you've surely noticed that I have the privilege of sharing this pulpit with Brian McKenzie on a regular basis. And you've probably also noticed that he and I are presently tag-teaming our way through 1 Timothy. And uh, when we're done with that, we'll go on to 2 Timothy and, and we'll tag-team our way through that. You've probably also noticed that I pick up where Brian leaves off and Brian picks up where I've left off. And in a very real sense, we're finishing each other's sentences on a regular basis. Now, I don't know if you can anticipate or appreciate what it takes for two different guys to come to the place where we think similarly about a passage from God's Word. But I hope that you can appreciate that Brian and I have to come to the place where we think similarly if we hope to have any kind of cohesion as we replace one another in the pulpit from one week to the next. And I can say quite candidly that you may think that it takes a, a lot of work to get to the place where we're able to do that, get to the point where we agree. But in reality, it takes less work than you might anticipate. And that's because I've, I've rarely met anyone whose mind works as much like mine as Brian's does. And having said that, buddy, I owe you an apology for saying that your mind works like my mind. But um, with that apology in place, it's, it's time to ask, so how does all that work? Well, Brian and I usually get together on Tuesdays uh, whenever we're both in town. Uh, for lunch, and, and obviously we can't get together every Tuesday because, you know, we're both gone a lot, but um, when we are able to get together, we pick a restaurant and, and we order lunch, and we talk for a few minutes about our families and, and how everyone is doing, and, and then we get down to the nitty-gritty of God's Word. Now, we don't get together to study God's Word. That's not what we do. Instead, we've both taken the time to study God's Word before we get together for lunch, and and there are no rules for how this next part goes down, but at that moment, one of us will begin to talk about what we've been learning as we've been in this particular passage in our own personal study of God's Word. 
Now, in other words, I take the time to share with Brian what I've learned from God's word because I want to obey something that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I want to correctly handle the word of truth, and I don't know how to do that apart from studying God's word and then sharing what I've studied with others who can critique what I think I've learned. They can actually listen. Actually, I may be saying foolish things. I can't be sure of that until somebody else interacts with this. You see, in my personal study, I've unearthed the seeds of truth. But I'm also aware that it might be that some of what I've uncovered in my study is inaccurate because it's not true to the counsel of God's word. So over lunch, I lay out the seeds of what I've learned, and I ask Brian to cultivate those seeds. I want him to churn up the soil and pull out the weeds so that what remains is truly a seed of truth that should grow to fruition in my life, grow to maturity in my life. And how does Brian do that? Well, he shares with me the seeds that he's uncovered as he's personally studied God's word, that same passage. He'll say things like, oh man, that's good. And uh, I wonder... I wonder if it would make sense to just kind of tweak it like this so that it's more in line with the passage that's about to come up or, or the passage that we just studied. We don't always agree, but we never argue. You caught that earlier when we read that. Don't argue about words. We don't always agree, but we don't argue. Instead, we cultivate the seeds of truth in one another's heart, and then we trust one another to just go and, and allow those seeds to grow to maturity in the days ahead. And I never leave one of those meetings without deeply desiring that this newly discovered, newly refined, this newly cultivated truth will grow to maturity in my life in the years, the days, weeks, months, and years that lie ahead. In other words, I leave lunch physically full and spiritually hungry. I leave lunch not, eating, not needing to eat any more physical food, but hungry to get back to my desk to look again at God's word to be, because I've been challenged in the things that I think I understand, what I think I know. And I can tell you that that's the best kind of hunger there is. To quote Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's God's promise. And that means that understanding happens when we study. Understanding happens when we study, and growth happens when we share. Understanding happens when we study, and growth happens when we share. And I have to add here that this past Wednesday morning was really cool because I, I, you know, I laid that out last week that the elders get together every Wednesday morning. But I sat with the elders during their regular weekly meeting and we took the time to do the same thing as we discussed what we've all been learning from the passage. We, we took what we, they, they all studied, we all studied before we came to the meeting and then we sat there and we discussed the passage. And it was so enriching to hear those various ideas about what this could possibly mean. I mentioned earlier that I hope you don't mind hearing an old man beg. So please let me beg you to hear what I'm saying this morning. Let me beg you to make a plan, to read, meditate on, memorize, pray through, 
and study God's word daily. And then once a week or once every other week or I don't know, once every 10 years, get together with someone who is reading, meditating, memorizing, praying through and studying God's word on a regular basis on their own. And learn from them as you teach them, as you share what you've discovered from God's word. You share with them and they share with you. Plant God's word in your heart and then get together with someone you trust who can cultivate what you've planted. Let God fill your heart and mind with a love for his word and then share that love with others around you. I'm begging you because that's my dream for you today. And if I could do it for you, I would, but I can't do it for you because this is something that you must do for yourself. This is part of picking up a spoon and feeding yourself. That's what this is. Think about this. If everyone here were to be in the habit of studying God's word on a regular basis and then sharing what they've learned from God's word on a regular basis with other people, can you imagine what we'd have here? Well, we'd have a church. And I can promise you that if this becomes a regular habit for all of us, our lives will be sweeter and richer than they've ever been before as we nourish ourselves and one another on God's word. We should all take note that over the last several weeks, Paul's been describing how sweet things can be in church. I don't know if you caught that, but th this description that he gave us has been just, he's, it's been so sweet to see how we can nourish one another, how we can grow spiritually, strengthen one another, reach out with God's word, have this place be the epicenter of an earthquake that, that spreads all across the countryside here. We should take note that over the last several weeks, he's been describing how sweet things can be as we personally take time in God's word, nourishing ourselves and then sharing it with others. But having said that, <laughs> dun, 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 you know, I, I think we all know that sometimes um, church is not as sweet as we'd like it to be. I mean, church should be the place where you come to rest and be refreshed so that you have the energy to do battle out there in the world. But sometimes we find ourselves resting and being refreshed by the world so that we can have the energy to do battle here at church. And, and I, I hope that's not how you feel about Potter's house right now. But the enemy could disrupt things at any, mo at any moment, any point. So this morning, Paul is going to talk to us about what to do and how to do it when it comes time to confront someone who is not teaching the truth. When it comes time to confront someone who is listening to the lies of the enemy. And, uh, and, and when it comes time to avoid the damage that that can possibly cause. So let's get to that by standing and reading the passage that we'll be unpacking this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. Read it aloud with me if you would. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Thank you. You can take your seats with real confidence that God just spoke to you as you read his word aloud. The story that I want to tell you this morning comes from the book of Acts and recounts a conversation that the apostle Paul had with the elders from the church at Ephesus. It's a story that I told you when we studied Acts in 2015 and uh, when we studied Ephesians in 2019. 
I want to tell it again this morning because it has particular bearing on this passage for this morning. At the beginning of the story, Paul has just spent three months traveling through Greece and teaching there, and the Jews in the meantime have been making plans to kill him. <laughs> surprise, surprise. You know, this is just kind of standard fare for the book of Acts. Paul travels and teaches, stays in a place until the Jews catch up with him and, and try to kill him, and then he moves on to someone else, somewhere else. But he's managed to slip from their grasp by heading deeper into Macedonia this time. He went from Asia into Europe. He stayed in Philippi for the festival of unleavened bread and made up his mind to be in Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. The easiest way to get from Philippi to Jerusalem is over water in the South Aegean Sea um, along the coast of Asia. So that's the route that Paul took. The ship put in for a few days in Miletus and Paul decided that he wanted to visit with the elders from the church in Ephesus uh, some 30 miles inland. But Paul's previous to visit to Ephesus had ended in a riot and Paul didn't have time for a riot right now if he wanted to get to Jerusalem in, uh, by Pentecost. So rather than go to Ephesus himself, he sent a messenger to request that the elders of the church in Ephesus meet him in Miletus, a journey of about 30 miles one way. Meanwhile, Paul remained there in Miletus as he waited for the elders, the pastors from the church at Ephesus. With that background, this is the story from God's Word from Acts chapter 20, verses 13 to 38. When the elders from Ephesus arrived, Paul reminded them of his last visit to Ephesus and the mess that he had found when he arrived there. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you from the very first day I was in the province of Asia, Paul said to them. I, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears during that time of severe testing as my Jewish opponents tried to kill me. Paul then added, you also know that I have never hesitated to preach or teach anything that would be helpful to you as I taught publicly and from house to house. I taught both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the Spirit of God is telling me to go to Jerusalem, Paul went on. And I have no idea what's going to happen to me there except the Spirit of God warns me in every place that I'm in that prison and hardships are awaiting me. But that's okay, Paul said. Because I consider my life, my life worth nothing to me and my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And I know, Paul continued, that none of you to whom I've preached about the kingdom of God will ever see my face again. That's why, Paul said, I want to be clearly understood today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you because I have not hesitated to tell you the whole truth, the whole will of God. Since this would be the last time Paul would see these men who had been so important to him and to whom he had been so important, he had some last words for them. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, Paul said. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Paul also had some warnings for them. I know that after I leave here, he said, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. That was frightening enough, but then Paul added, even from among your own number, 
men will arise and distort the truth in, in order to draw people away to follow him. So be on your guard, Paul said. And remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So I'm committing you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among God's holy people, Paul concluded. I never coveted anything that any of you owned, and I worked hard to support myself while I was with you. I even helped other people who were needy while I was there. I did all this because I remembered the words of Jesus when he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. <coughs> when Paul had finished talking, he knelt with all of them right there on the beach and prayed with them. They all wept and embraced him, kissed him. And what grieved the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. They accompanied him to the ship and stood there on the shore as the ship cast off and continued its journey south to Jerusalem. And that's the story from God's Word. <coughs> that story provided a significant amount of context for us as we unpack this passage this morning. But there's also some context that we need to have that Paul provided for us in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 4.6 says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Remember, Paul was discipling Timothy. That was the role that they had with one another. And Paul and Timothy had begun their relationship when Paul led Timothy to Christ, probably during his first visit to the cities of Derby and Lystra, where Timothy lived. You may also remember that on Paul's first journey to Lystra, his first visit there, when Timothy was only a teenager, the people of, of Lystra responded to Paul's teaching by trying to kill him with stones. They kept pummeling him with stones until, thinking he was dead, they dragged his dead body out of the city. But that wasn't the end of the story because once Paul had been dragged outside the city and the disciples had gathered around him, Paul got up and walked back into the city under his own power. Now, back when we first looked at that story, we agreed that, that we can't be sure whether Paul was actually dead because what it says in the text is, thinking he was dead, they dragged his body out of the city. Well, they assumed he was dead, but even if he wasn't dead, the fact that he's able to walk back into the city under his own power after being pummeled with stones, I think, is a miracle all by itself. A miracle that we believe Timothy witnessed as a young man who had just become a follower of Jesus. Then on Paul's next visit to Lystra and Derbe, the Jesus, follow, the Jesus followers all agreed to approach Paul to suggest to him that he should invite Timothy to go along with him on his missionary journeys. Now remember, Paul was an apostle, and it was an apostle's job. Do you remember this? What's an apostle's job? To preach the gospel to people who have never heard it. Not, not people that are unchurched, but people that are unreached. That's the job of an apostle. Paul the apostle was accompanied on his travels by men like Barnabas, or, uh, who went with him on his first journey, and Silas, who went with him on his second, third, and if you count that, a fourth journey, his subsequent journeys. Barnabas and Silas were both prophets in the first century church. 
And, uh, and a prophet's job in the, in the first century church was to accompany an apostle and strengthen, encourage, and comfort the new believers. Strengthen, encourage, and comfort the new believers. So Paul would share the gospel with people who had never heard it, and Barnabas or Silas would carry the responsibility for teaching the new believers as they first began to grow in their faith. It is a unique skill to be able to do that. But Paul and Silas did not have the responsibility to disciple and develop leaders in the church. That was the job of men like Timothy and Titus, both who were first century evangelists. And according to Titus 1.5, the job of an evangelist in the first century was to put in order what was left unfinished in the new church and appoint elders in every town. And I know that we've studied this before, but it's important that we review these ideas because it will have direct bearing both on this summary of chapter 4 and it'll help us to understand the underpinnings of chapter 5 as we get into it. And when we get to chapter 6 next year and then take on 2 Timothy, we'll have the core insight as to how to interpret the things that Paul will say to Timothy, this guy named Timothy, this man that Paul was discipling into ministry. So Paul the Apostle was training Timothy the evangelist, first century evangelist, not Billy Graham evangelist. So Paul the Apostle was training that first century evangelist to do the work of an evangelist even though Paul himself was not an evangelist. Paul spent time with Timothy as they ministered together, and we know, from, we know that from studying the book of Acts as we did back in 2015. Can you believe that was seven years ago, 2015? So they traveled together as Paul trained Timothy, but then there came that moment when Paul left Timothy there in Ephesus. Remember, that's how 1 Timothy starts. I left you there in Ephesus to minister there. But, but, Paul didn't leave Timothy in Ephesus to be the pastor there. And, and we know that as evidence of that. We can look at 1 Timothy 1.3. And, and I need you to check my accuracy as I read this, okay? As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can be the pastor there. Is that what it says? That's not what it says. It says, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach any false doctrines any longer. Timothy didn't stay in Ephesus to be the pastor there. He stayed in Ephesus to oversee and train the men who, would eventually, who were doing the teaching there and who would eventually become both deacons and elders there in the church. Remember what Paul wrote to Titus in that fifth verse in the first chapter? We looked at it a minute ago. The reason that I left you in Crete was, was so that you might put in order what was left unfinished. Can you picture Timothy doing this with these men who were growing in their faith? And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So taking that all together, we see that Timothy was responsible for training the teachers in Ephesus and helping them to become deacons and then elders. Timothy was also responsible for making sure that what the teachers taught was actually the truth. That's a very uh, job. <laughs> Trust me on this one. That was a very difficult job that Timothy was asked to do. That was something that was especially important in Ephesus as we heard from that story from God's word. Look what it says in Acts 20, 29 to 31. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. 
So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So Timothy's job is a complicated one because there were times when he would, when he would teach the teachers or the people in the church and simply slide in and, and enjoy the time that he had with him. There were other times when Timothy would be forced to sit with the deacons and teachers and the elders and confront them because they were teaching things that undermined the truth of the gospel in the hearts of the people who sat and listened to him. So that said, let's just come to terms with the fact that there are times when every church is forced to take a stand against false teaching or against heresy but that's never going to become the core curriculum here at the Potter's House. We don't exist to call other people out. We don't. We exist to teach the truth and to make sure the truth is maintained. That this is a place where the truth can be heard, unmingled with false teaching or heresy. At the same time, we dare not forget where Paul began the conversation he had with us in chapter 4. The Spirit clearly says that in, la in later times, some will abandon the faith. And follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. The people that Paul is talking about here are people who were, had been impacted by apostates. These, these people who were teaching the doctrines that had been generated by demons that are always going to be lies, they believe those and then they pass those on to other people. And apostates is a highfalutin religious word, but it describes those who at one time agreed and, and believed in the idea of an historical Jesus, but never trusted Christ as their savior. They believe the gospel intellectually, but never embrace Jesus as their savior in their hearts. In layman's terms, they were fans of the game, but were never actually part of the team. And they just walked away from the faith. The sad part is when someone walks away from the faith, they don't go alone. When someone walks away from the faith, they don't go alone. They always take others with them. They tend to claim that they've discovered something new and danged if they don't want you to discover it too. And as you follow them, they lead you away from the simple truth of the gospel. But listen to me. You have to understand that when you let someone take the gospel away from you, you let them take the gospel away from your children as well. We need to stand on the gospel and take a stand against anyone who corrupts the gospel in any way. We received a pure gospel and we owe it to our children to pass along a pure gospel to them so that they can pass along a pure gospel to our grandchildren. And because I already have grandchildren, some of them are here this morning, so forgive me for that. I can tell you that I do not tolerate it when I'm talking to someone who is twisting the gospel in some way. I want to be clear. You don't have to teach what I teach about speaking in tongues. You don't have to teach what I teach about the rapture, whether it comes before or after the tribulation. There's a whole long list of things that you don't have to teach. You can teach differently from me, and you'll still be welcome to my house for milk and cookies. But if you teach a perverted or twisted gospel, if you teach that Jesus is not God, 
or if you teach things that undermine the faith of people who are already believers, who are already trusting Christ, then you and I will not have enough in common to enjoy milk and cookies together. We're facing today in the 21st century. We're facing that today in the 21st century because the airwaves and, and the internet are full of lies. And if you expose yourself to those lies and continue to listen to them, you'll begin to believe them no matter how outrageous they might have seemed at first. It's part of the human condition to want to fit in. That's the way we're built. And we're all inclined to believe what people we trust believe, even if that thing is contrary to God's word. I want to fit in with this group of people, and so if I must believe this, I see that it's not true, but I want to fit in. We're all driven by that. And because this blind partisanship seems to be a theme in our American culture today, many of us, if not most of us, have developed the habit of latching onto someone who has a dynamic personality and then blindly following their lead without really taking the time to compare what they're saying to God's word. And that's this blind partisanship happens with such subtlety that it's sometimes months before we find ourselves in a place we never expected to be. We've lost our way because the person we were following lost their way before we began following them. And I don't know about you, but when I realize that I've lost my way, I count on the good people in my life to not let me stay lost, but to come looking for me, to bring me back home. And the way that they'll help me to get back home will be to confront me and to teach me the truth about where I got lost so that I can stop believing the lies that misled me and choose instead to believe the truth. But in order to get me back on the right track, they're going to have to unteach the lies that I've believed so that they can teach me the truth that will replace those lies. But it isn't just chapter 1 of 1 Timothy that helps us to see that Timothy's going to be in this unenviable position from time to time. There's also evidence in the chapter that we just finished, chapter 4. You remember how chapter 4 began? We've looked at it already. The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Paul goes over on from there to fill in the blanks for Timothy by saying that these hypocritical liars, which is a fairly strong term, they would forbid people to marry and stop people from eating certain foods. Do you remember that when we, when we covered that? That marriage thing and the foods thing were... Uh, the food thing, uh, were both typical to the kind of messed up thinking that was common in the first century. And while we in the 21st century may not have any cults that do those two things specifically, we do have people who, when they have the opportunity to teach God's word, or when they have the opportunity to lead God's people, they use that opportunity to teach people things that are not true. But they're clever because they choose to masquerade those things by putting the mask of God's word on them. That's what they do. In other words, they're teaching lies, but they're selling their lies as God's word, as God's will, as God's own truth. And there are people who are deceived by false teachers and heretics. And we know from our study in 1 Timothy that there are two ways that Timothy's supposed to respond 
to the fact that there were false teachers on the loose there in Ephesus. First, according to 1 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, Timothy was supposed to, to let the believers know that there were false teachers on the loose in their midst. Look at what it says. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister, a good servant of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. False teachers were on the loose, and the first thing that Timothy was supposed to do was let the church know. Help the church to understand that there are lies out there that will drive your choices and your decisions if you allow them. Paul told Timothy to let the believers know about the false teachers. And as part of that process, Timothy was supposed to pass along that no one should have anything to do with the false teachers and what they were teaching. Did you catch that? Have nothing to do with it. There were two parts of the first thing that Timothy was supposed to do. He was supposed to get people to understand that the false teachers were out there and then warn them against it. But it's clear from the passage this morning that Timothy was, uh, was supposed to do something else. He was supposed to confront the people who had already believed the false teachers. He was not free <laughs> in the process of that. Timothy was not free to take out his sword and start carving up the false teachers. That wasn't the plan. And we'll see that in a moment. And in the meantime, and we really are almost done, but in the meantime, let's just say that Timothy has discovered, let's just imagine for the moment that he's discovered someone that's not teaching the truth. Someone that's teaching outright lies and other people are believing him. People in the church are believing him. How is he supposed to deal with those people? Well, Timothy wasn't supposed to take the false teachers out and shoot the breeze. But he also wasn't supposed to take the false teachers out in the back and shoot them in the head. That was, there's a sweet spot kind of right in between those two things. And the passage for this morning articulates that sweet spot as it speaks of how we should relate, first of all, to old men. And I can tell you that I first studied this passage in, in depth when I was in my early 20s. And for that reason... I actually wore a t-shirt under my shirt because I want you to have some perspective on this. Uh, in my early 20s, I had a different take on it than I have now in my 60s. It's weird being as old as old people. I'm telling you right now, I don't know how that happened. I, you know, the years went by and then all of a sudden, I'm as old as old people. I still remember the first time I took a senior discount. I remember the first time I was with other people who took a senior discount. It's weird as you go. I mean, there are some things that are really good about it, but instead of reading this stupid t-shirt, let's read 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Over the years, I've said that there's nothing that works like the church when the church works. And there is nothing that works like the family when the family works. The truth is, if you have a family that actually works, you have a rare and precious thing, so protect it. And if we have a church here that actually works, we have a rare and precious thing, and we are required to protect it. The church and the family have a great deal in common. And we can even speak in terms of our church family. We say that sometimes. 
And those are truths that Paul combines and invokes in these two verses. Paul anticipated that there would be times when Timothy would have to confront someone in the church because they were believing and living a lie that had been taught them by someone else. In cases like that, Paul says that Timothy should not rebuke or scold those people, but instead he should exhort and entreat those people. Paul told Timothy that he was to treat an old man like he would treat his own father. He was to treat an old woman as he would treat his own mother. He was to treat young men and young women as though they were brothers and sisters with absolute purity. You see, these people who truly believed the gospel but were now deceived and were, were being led astray, they were still members of the family of God and deserved respect because of their place in the family of God. This is very like the advice that Paul gives us in, in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry one another's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. What it all boils down to is this. Hear me. I long... I long for the discipline to study God's word daily on my own. And I hope you long for that too. And when I've planted the seed of God's word in my heart, I long for the opportunity to share it with others who will cultivate that truth in my heart. And I hope that you long for that too. Sometimes I'll get it right. And sometimes I'll get it wrong. But either way, I want you to be gentle with me and treat me like a member of the family as you help me to see the difference between truth and error. And I hope you long for that too. And I'm convinced that if we make those things a priority in our lives and give ourselves wholly to them, then this will be a place where the gospel in all its purity will be available to our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren for years to come. And once again, I hope that's something that you long for. In closing, let me read the passage to you one more time. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Will you stand with me in the presence? Father and our God, we thank you today for the privilege that we have of being here, not only as a church, but as a family, loving one another, caring for one another, depending on one another. God, help us to pivot around the truth of your word. Help us to pinpoint the gospel in all of its purity in our hearts as we interact with one another. Help us to hold on to that at the expense of everything else. And God, when those moments come when we need to confront one another, help us to do it gently. Help us to do it with respect. Help us to entreat and encourage and pull rather than push. God, we pray that uh, you'd exercise our hearts in this and teach us to love one another with pure hearts, fervently. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. Um, we're headed out those doors. I didn't do ready break last week and paid for it significantly. We're headed out those doors, and, uh, and you, outside those doors, there may be an old man, okay? Be gentle with him, because <laughs> it might be me. Ready?
Go get him, Potter's house. 